You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Hi everyone, my name is Mark Peters. I am the District Superintendent of Alliance Churches in the Canadian Pacific District. And today, Pastor Mark and Sam asked me if I would come in to speak about an important subject, the seventh word, which deals with adultery. And so it's a pleasure to be with you today. Not many of us enjoy being told what to do. The longer the list of rules, the more likely we are to resist. After all, rules are about control, aren't they? These days, the subject of freedom sparks intense debate. I wonder, is there any other value that is more cherished in Western culture? Charles Taylor, in his book, A Secular Age, summarizes the current perspective on freedom. He writes, let each person do their own thing, and one shouldn't criticize another person's values because they have a right to live their own life as you do. Many Western people are, generally speaking, quite happy to be free from the moral boundaries of the recent past. When people talk about limiting personal freedom, they do so typically according to the harm principle which says that people should be free to do whatever they want as long as they don't harm anyone else. But as Tim Keller notes, this principle only works when we all agree on what harm is, and we clearly don't. Last Sunday, Pastor Marty addressed the sixth word, you shall not murder. This Sunday, we turn our attention to the seventh. As I begin, I want to remind you of something Pastor David said as the series began, The Ten Words, or Ten Commandments, were not God's attempt to saddle Israel with an arbitrary, oppressive set of laws. And the introduction to the Ten Words offers us a window into God's intent. In Exodus 20, verse 2, God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God had not freed Israel only to enslave them again with rules. Instead, God spoke the ten words to protect their newfound freedom. And so the ten words are boundaries. There's no question about that. But they're boundaries that protect humanity's freedom to enjoy God and one another. When we keep the ten words, life flourishes. When we ignore them, life disintegrates. Are you ready for the seventh word? You shall not commit adultery. Throughout history, in most places and in most cultures, adultery has been seen in a negative light. Even in our current secular West Coast culture, by and large, people frown upon adultery. Let me take just a moment to illustrate. Five years ago, the New York Yankees retired Derek Jeter's number. It was the final benchmark in a long career already crowded with highlights. Derek Jeter played 20 seasons at shortstop for the Yankees. He is the Yankees' all-time career leader in hits, doubles, games played, stolen bases, times on base, and at bats. He was selected to the All-Star Game 14 times, and he's a five-time World Series champion. Now, on the field, Jeter was must-watch TV, and off the field, Jeter was New York's most eligible bachelor and playboy. Over the course of his career, Jeter bounced from relationship to relationship, 
His past girlfriends are the who's who of Hollywood actresses and supermodels. But despite his many women, Jeter was the darling of the media and was widely considered to be an all-around good guy. Since retirement, he's married and now has children. You don't have to be a sports fan to know that Tiger Woods was portrayed very differently by the media. Woods is no less talented than Jeter. In fact, it could be argued that Tiger is the greatest golfer to ever live. But unlike Derek Jeter, Tiger Woods was blasted by the media, vilified in the court of public opinion, and was subsequently dropped by the majority of his sponsors. His fall from grace was attached to reports of his relationships with multiple women. And here's the point I want to make. It wasn't that Tiger Woods had relationships with more women than Derek Jeter. It was that Woods pursued these relationships while he was married. In Western culture, nearly every sexual boundary has been cast aside, but there's something about the seventh word that continues to resonate with people. You shall not commit adultery. My question is, why this cultural affinity for the seventh word? This morning, I want to argue that the seventh word tells us something important about humanity, about who we are, and what we've been made for. But before I talk about humanity, let's consider what the seventh word reveals to us about God. God is faithful, loyal, and committed to humanity. He is the ultimate covenant keeper. As you know, God created humanity for perfect relationship with himself and others. When humanity rebelled against God, sin entered the world, and ever since that time, humanity has lived with both suspicion and selfishness. Now, in response, God has acted to redeem and restore what has been lost, and his solution, in one sense, was a very human solution. He chose one couple, Abraham and Sarah. He entered into covenant with them, promising to be faithful, loyal, and committed to their good. And in blessing this one couple, God intended to bring blessing to the entire world. As you may know, Abraham and Sarah's family grew into the nation of Israel, and God's covenant faithfulness to Israel was meant to be on display in order to draw the attention and worship of the surrounding nations. Throughout the Old Testament, God's relationship with Israel is frequently described in terms of a marriage covenant. And so we read in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 32, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. God later spoke the following word to the prophet Hosea. He said, Go, Hosea, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. In time, Hosea married a woman by the name of Gomer, and their marriage became a living, prophetic word to the people of Israel. Hosea was faithful to an unfaithful wife, she left their marriage bed and bore the child of another man. Hosea's relationship with Gomer mirrored God's relationship with Israel. God himself was faithful to an unfaithful people. 
In Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, God made the following promise to Israel. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. God's covenant with Israel is unlike most human marriages in the sense that God has entered into an extremely one-sided marriage. Ronald Wallace writes, the whole initiative was taken by God and born by God. But God's loyalty, faithfulness, and covenant commitment is most fully expressed through the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, we see the perfect union of God and humanity. He is both very God of very God and bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Wallace notes that the union between God and humanity in Christ can be spoken of in reference to the the marriage relationship. The two have become one flesh. Christ's commitment to humanity is such that he remains fully human and he promises that he will never leave or abandon us. By the time we get to the New Testament, God's relationship with his people continues to be described in terms of marriage. And so in passages like 1 Corinthians 6, God calls the church to covenant faithfulness by drawing upon this one flesh imagery. Since we've been united with Christ, what we do with our physical body really matters. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul speaks to husbands and wives by once again drawing upon Christ's relationship to the church. Since Jesus has demonstrated his love for the church, his bride, by laying down his life for her sake, husbands and wives are invited to do the same. In Jesus, we most clearly see who God is. He's the faithful, loyal, committed covenant keeper. Now here's the question. If what I've said about God is accurate, what are the implications for what it means to be human? Put another way, what does the seventh word tell us about who we are and what we've been made for? Simply put, humanity has been made for covenant keeping. The seventh word, you shall not commit adultery, is actually an extension of God's own being and action. When we know what God is like, We have insight into what he intends for us. After all, humanity has been made in his image. We were not made to commit adultery because God does not. He's faithful and loyal. He keeps his promises. He never runs out on us. We've been made to experience this commitment from God and others, and we've also been made to give it. Another question. If we've been made for covenant-keeping, then why are human beings so prone to covenant breaking? The Bible's answer is sin. 16th century theologian Martin Luther describes sin in terms of humanity being curved in upon itself. Instead of being open to God and others, instead of living for God and others, our sinful nature is inward in its orientation, which is to say our primary commitment is to live for ourselves. I'm curved inward. So are you, as is the rest of humanity. Consider for just a moment the implications of this reality. Right now on planet Earth, there are roughly 7 billion people, each one with a primary orientation to live for themselves. And here's the question. 
how do we cultivate a sense of shared responsibility for this planet or for the common good when our primary commitment is to oneself? We can't. We won't, at least not with any consistency. Adultery is is contemplated in every human heart, married or single, because we are committed primarily to ourself. And nowhere does this become more clear than in the marriage relationship. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of officiating dozens and dozens of weddings. Uh, Wedding couples spent months and months planning all of the details, the guest list, the decorations, the dress. But for me, the center point of every wedding is the vows. The vows outline the covenant promises being made between a man and a woman. And if I were to take every marriage vow I've ever heard and reduce it to its essential nature, one thing would remain. A profession of exclusive loyalty. In marriage, one man and one woman say to one another, I choose you for life. There will be no other. What I've never heard at a wedding and hope never to hear is something like this. I'm telling you ahead of time, one day I may choose to be unfaithful to you. Over time, you and I are going to disagree, hurt one another and build walls. I'm going to get bored with you frustrated by you, and I may explore greener pastures. After all, I'm in this marriage for my own happiness. And so today, I give you my yes, and I will continue to do so for as long as it suits me, but I reserve the right to pursue my own satisfaction, and if necessary, at your expense. And with this ring, I give you my pledge. I've not heard this vow at a wedding. But I've seen these sentiments played out in many marriages by way of sexual unfaithfulness. One of my regent professors, uh, John Stackhouse, writes the following. We ourselves become delusional about sex and in this one crucial respect. We keep thinking that sex can be just what we want it to be rather than what it is. We might buy a car and intend it to get us around and make us happy while it does so without having to fuss with it. But a car needs gas, oil, maintenance, and other basic upkeep, and our preferring that it didn't need these inconvenient and costly things won't keep us from running out of gas or having the engine seize up in the middle of the highway. It is what it is, and wishing otherwise doesn't make it so. He continues, Most basically, sex joins. Sex unifies. The second chapter of the Bible uses a pretty obvious metaphor for the first marriage. The two become one flesh. Sex, that is, marries one person to another. Most cultures around the world recognize this fact. For fact, it is. No matter how elaborate the wedding ritual or the power of the vows, the couple isn't truly married until they have sex. Sex joins. What connects us, therefore, results in injury when we pull away, when the relationship ends. Couples don't just go their separate ways, except in the sense of two parts of a fractured bone going their separate ways. Couples break up. They were joined, and now they're not. And that's trauma. He concludes, God tells us that sex is good. 
and we're free to engage in it. God also tells us that sex is reserved for marriage. That's the only context in which the power of sex can do its work without damage, namely in the one relationship that is all about lifelong union. The sex only in marriage rule is a frank statement of the way things are, the way that we are and the way sex is. We can ignore it in the same way in which we ignore our car's owner manual or ignore our physician's advice. We're free to do it, of course, and we're free to suffer the consequences. Brothers and sisters, the seventh word is not arbitrary. It protects us from ruin. When we keep the seventh word, individuals, marriages, and families flourish. When we ignore this word, disintegration takes place. The seventh word reminds us that we were made to experience a faithful, loyal love and to give it. You might recall in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he affirms and intensifies the seventh word. Listen to his words in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, let me begin by saying that noticing beauty isn't sinful. In fact, an appreciation for beauty, human or otherwise, is a part of being made in God's image. Neither is it sinful to be attracted to another person. The rightness or wrongness of our looking comes down to what's happening in our heart as we look. To lust is to look with a desire to devour. Lust is always reductionistic. It reduces people to something less than human, something disposable, something to be consumed and then thrown away. We've gone beyond looking to lusting when we begin to view a person in terms of our own gratification. The great lie of pornography is in its promise to deliver safe sex. There's nothing safe about pornography. It destroys our ability to connect with real people in real relationships. The people portrayed in pornographic images are more image than person. They are two-dimensional beings. They don't have flaws. They don't have expectations of us. They don't have needs or aspirations. We don't have to relate to them or care about them. They're presented as bodies without souls, minds, or feelings. They exist simply to be used for our desires. Pornography destroys our ability to relate to real people. And so, we can commit adultery in our hearts or by sleeping with someone other than our spouse, but in either case, we commit a kind of theft. We take something that does not belong to us. We have been made for so much more. God is a covenant-keeping God, and we too have been made for covenant-keeping. And so the seventh word calls us back to this exclusive loyalty to God and to our spouses. It may be that you have been unfaithful and that God is inviting you to repent, to return, and to once again pick up the vocation of covenant-keeping. And if you have strayed from your commitment to your spouse, can I ask you, commit to telling someone. The journey to restoration and freedom is not meant to be walked alone. As I conclude my message today, I want to ground this seventh word 
in the grace of God. Grace is one of the most important and central words in all of Christian theology. Grace refers to the fact that all that God gives to us, things like love, forgiveness, and healing, all of it is undeserved, which is to say that God blesses humanity on the basis of his own kindness and generosity, not on the basis of our good performance. Grace is essentially a covenant word. God takes the initiative to enter into relationship with people like me and you, knowing how unfaithful we are and will be. It's an extremely one-sided covenant, but God keeps his promise. He faithfully loves and forgives, even as he is at work within us to make us into a faithful people. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Our relationship to Jesus is entirely dependent upon him keeping his covenant to love, forgive, bless, protect, and sustain the union between us. In marriage, we both choose and we are chosen. We choose to leave behind other relationships in order to embrace an exclusive relationship with our wife or husband. And Jesus is the one who empowers us to faithfully nurture this one flesh exclusivity. Perhaps you remember the miracle Jesus performed at the wedding in Cana. He turned water into wine. And though very few who attended were aware of the vital part he played, Jesus was the one who kept the wedding feast from deteriorating. And the same could be said in Christian marriage. Jesus is present to empower, protect, save, and heal marriages as they continue. We need the covenant-keeping God to empower us to be covenant-keeping people. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ find us and sustain us at our point of need. Would you pray with me this, this morning? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise because you are a covenant-keeping God. You are loyal, you are faithful, and you don't run from us when we are unfaithful. This morning, we thank you for the grace we've already received and we ask for more, for the ongoing cleansing, forgiving work. We pray also that you would be at work within us to cultivate faithfulness to you, to friends, to our spouse. Where we have stepped outside of our commitments, call us back that we might repent, that we might turn, that we might be faithful, loyal, covenant keepers. To this end, we ask for your help, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.